0: Hi, I'm Dr. Scott
1: and I'm Dr. Shiloh,
0: and this is L.A. Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast.
1: Each week we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system and entertainment.
0: And today our episode is a true crime documentary review of the Max documentary series Last Call When a Serial Killer Stalked Queer New York. Welcome back, everybody. We don't have a ton of housekeeping except to welcome our new Patreon members at all different levels. I think these are new discoveries to the podcast, probably from some of our crossover efforts, which is wonderful. We're really happy to see that that's happening. So welcome. Yes. Dr. Shiloh, was there anything <laughs> that we need to handle?
1: I don't think so. I think we should jump into probably one of our longer documentary episodes. However, let me do a quick recap of last week's episode, which was 164 on childhood psychopathy. And we delved into disturbing examples of historical and recent cases of homicides committed by children with a thorough explanation of the complexities of the whole nature versus nurture idea and that the disorders seen in children that potentially could pave the way for a psychopathy. I don't want to say diagnosis, but labeling down
0: the road. So what are you watching this month?
1: Oh, my gosh. I feel like I've been watching more television lately. I don't know why, but some good stuff. There is a series shoot. I think it's on Prime Video. No. It's Netflix. It's called Bodies. And I've heard that's great. It's really cool. It's very Black ish So you'd love it. But okay. essentially it takes place in Whitechapel, London, in four different time periods. Currently, and then the 1940s, and then the 1880s, I wanna say if I'm right on that. And then in the future to 2053, and it follows a detective in each time period of that jurisdiction. And they all find the same dead body in the same location, all those decades apart. Very cool. What else? Of course, I watched The Killer, like the night it came out, the new David Fincher film, eh. I was a little disappointed. It was okay. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's it, very stylistically quintessential. David Fincher really enjoyed that aspect of it. And then I've been listening to this great series on guns that Malcolm Gladwell has been doing on his podcast, Revisionist History. And basically, so he's, good. it's so good. It's six episodes. He says, basically it's everything America has gotten wrong about guns. And, you know, he's about as liberal and Canadian as one can be. And, And so to have him go through this journey is fantastic. It's done really, really well and got me thinking about some new aspects they hadn't thought of before when it comes to this conversation about gun violence.
0: He is an amazing author, and I only discovered his podcast and really his writings. I mean, I had read articles and stuff, but I discovered it probably four years ago and the first one that first one of his podcast episodes that was that was recommended to me was about the phenomenon of american golf courses and i know that sounds like the most boring (laughs) it's it's absolutely not and it actually does have sort of a a criminal overlay because it's criminal that golf courses don't pay any taxes like they use enormous enormous pieces of land. They use incredible amounts of natural resources. They have, you know, unless they make a huge effort, the runoff from the maintenance chemicals is really rough. But the fact that like the richest part of the 1% of the country, you know, are not paying taxes on these enormous pieces of land in very densely populated areas anyway um, he
1: has a whole network pushkin network podcast network there is not a bad podcast on his network they're all so good what about you
0: so i'm still catching up on really all the great halloween stuff okay because there was a lot of really good stuff this year which is interesting because last year it seemed like there wasn't a lot of great horror stuff i watched a wonderful weird horror movie called the cursed on hulu last night which was really really good and weird and sad. And then what else? You know, we have been watching a lot of classic stuff. I love watching classic movies all the time. But you know, we had our watch party recently with Sunset Boulevard, which really as campy as it is does have this overlay of delusional disorder and narcissistic disorder and and some borderline issues. And right, you know, that was really fun. And then I rewatched snippets the other day of Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, which really needs to be I mean, given today's episode, it really (laughs) needs to be on our watch list.
1: No, we already did it. We did a watch party with Hush 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 We Charlotte. (laughs) Oh, we
0: gosh that we did. Oh, my gosh. We
1: were ahead of our time for once.
0: (laughs) I know. Okay, so we're just going to remind everybody that's how many episodes we've done, folks. I can barely keep up with the topic. Thankfully, you created that wonderful spreadsheet. But for today, I mean, I spent a lot of time this week watching the series of documentary episodes for the hbo original max four-part documentary series last call when a serial killer stalked queer new york so yeah that actually took up a lot of time because it's incredibly dense and i actually generally with these documentaries i do one thorough watch Mm -hmm. and then i go back and i either watch it on double speed okay uh or i dip back in with max on the app you don't have the option of speeding it up like you do on netflix But it's directed by Anthony Corona, executive produced by Liz Garbus and Charlize Theron, among many others. It has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 100% on the Tomatometer and 85% audience score. Interesting. I'm surprised that it has that high of a score. Like, I enjoyed it, Mm -hmm. but it's not my top pick in documentaries that we watch, but we'll get into it.
1: Yeah, we had uh, Patreon members on our Discord that said it was one of their favorites so yeah. far so it's it's connecting with audiences so trigger warnings here although trigger warnings don't always work
0: boy did they not work <laughs> the
1: research shows and we'll once leave again. it
0: there <laughs> our anecdotal experience as well supports that trigger warnings do not work right
1: yet here it is so today
0: so don't yeah. laugh as I'm you're not, mentioning I'm not, these i'm
1: okay. straight face here we go today's episode is going to have a lot in it you guys. So murder, kidnapping, dismemberment, murder of LGBTQ victims as well as, you know, other mentions of hate crimes, other mentions of sexual assaults. There really is a lot in this one. And we'll talk about the tone of the documentary later, but you know, that could sound like a lot, it could sound very gory, it could sound very exploitative, yet this documentary manages not to make it so
0: absolutely agree i don't think there's any exploitation going on the the makers are very careful about that i would add another subcategory to our trigger warning today which is the use of date rape drugs and that is very much discussed
1: so in last call the focus shifts back and forth between five known brutal crimes that utilize kidnapping drugging and dismemberment of victims, really to address the disturbing delays in addressing the urgency needed to investigate these crimes and the subsequent investigation, which takes a very long time and is very frustrating for the viewers, yes. but even just for the officers to prioritize the suspect pool, how long that took and eventually to capture the killer. So the documentary definitely lays out the complex issues that surrounded the cases at the time in the really not too distant past, where the gay community was still marginalized, even in one of the largest metropolitan areas of the world, which is really astonishing.
0: Yeah, and the production had some very specific goals. And there's some really interesting background about how these people came together to tell this story. The four-part series is directed by Anthony Corona. It's thoughtful. And in my opinion, I think it's a somewhat slow-paced, but very well-crafted series that makes a great effort to expand far beyond the general template of true crime productions. Corona succeeds in doing this by providing a really strong historical context along with full explorations of each of the victims' lives, which is not something we see all the time. Again, let me just reiterate, Each of the known victims, all framed in a very confounding criminal mystery. For me as a viewer, one of the major mysteries, which is more sort of astonishment, but not so much of a mystery, is the lack of action and coordination by law enforcement in the exploration of any investigation of these crimes. I get the contextual factors of the time period and the homophobia. And of course, the homophobia at the time was really aggravated by the HIV epidemic. There are moments in this documentary that almost any viewer who has been a victim of sexual assault may find triggering. It's necessary to the story. It's not exploitative, quite horrific.
1: Yes. And although we're giving you a lot today, there are still pieces and parts and interviews we're leaving out that really help shape the story. But you know, if you watched it yourself, you saw it. If you are going to watch it, you'll still get a lot, despite, you know, even just Talking to one of the NYPD officers who was gay, right? And like what that experience was like for him. So it really helps shape this. The narrative unfolds with a series of macabre murders that took place in the early 90s, including those of Peter Anderson in 1991, Thomas Mulcahy in 1992, Anthony Marrero and then Michael Sequeira and that they were both murdered in 1993. While all of these men were unrelated, the common factor they shared was having last been seen in or around a New York City gate establishment. So the investigations into these murders remained separate for years due to the jurisdictional challenges between New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, as well as what appears to be an intentional lack of effective communication between law enforcement agencies, specifically with NYPD. Seems like the other jurisdictions at some point really got on board and needed to start talking to each other, but... I mean, we'll even talk later what their frustrations were like with NYPD. And as viewers, you really feel the impact of implicit and overt police bias that aggravated the situation, namely preventing timely and effective investigation of the murders.
0: Yeah, very well put. Thank you. Again, it's an interesting spectrum of history here because NYPD has really come a long way since the, the time of this happening. but. That's what also makes it so jarring is that you're watching these interviews with older retired detectives who, frankly, still seem a little clueless <laughs> Yeah, and make some really, really poor choices of statements. Producer Howard Gertler was initially approached by Liz Garbius.
1: Garbius, she's so good. She's done so many good true crime documentaries and feature films about true crime stories. She's the one that did Lost Girls, Bob Culper's oh. book.
0: Well, there you go. Yeah. Hey, Liz, call us. We're available. (laughs) (laughs) Really, we're available. Really. Also, along with Liz and Gertler is Dan Kogan. They had a project based on Elon Green's book, Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust, Murder in Queer New York. Gertler then sought out director Anthony Corona to join the project because of his success and his specific tone with Suzanne Barscht on top, which is a documentary, and an episode of pride from 2021 and what's really interesting is that corona had initially declined to do this project because he was approached by another company and he was concerned about re-traumatizing the community the survivors and the family members gertler was able to convince him to come on board after explaining that the focus of the series would be primarily on the victims and the activists who had to go into high power mode to advocate for police intervention rather than just focusing the entire series on the killer. And I would say just right off the bat, they really accomplished that. It's very clear that they accomplished that.
1: I'm so glad you looked up this background because I already love the mindfulness that went into thinking about this project
0: yeah, and how it would yeah, affect others. Yeah. And I think that there's more on this. I mean, again, maybe not my my top favorite documentary series, but I really, really encourage people to, to watch it for a discussion about, you know, if you are in the LGBTQIA community yourself or you have friends or family, this is really an important part of understanding history and context for, for us, for our, for, for my community. I want to talk a little bit about re-traumatization because that seems to be such a, an important part for Corona. And I also, you know, there's a reason why this episode is going to be a little bit longer because we're going to unpack a few of the concepts rather than just do a standalone review, whether we liked it or not. This, there are some very important points here and especially this one about re-traumatization, especially given the light of a couple of recent episodes that people Mm. have had reactions to and the subject of re-traumatization in my professional opinion, and I think you, Dr. Shiloh, probably share part of this as well. It should always be at the forefront of content creators' minds, right?
1: Yeah. And I think I think we're certainly starting to see that shift and change really from small, like pod independent podcasts, and is sort of trickling up, actually, with the power that some of these platforms have given to survivors and right. family members of victims. So this, this just felt like, ah, finally, someone did it right. <laughs> right. And I agree. It, even though there are family members and friends, and maybe that's the reason there were so many family members and friends involved in this one. Like, they were seeing the the way in which the producers and the director were coming at this and how important it was to talk about their loved one who's no longer here.
0: Yeah, I would also say that the, the family members and friends that are involved, it also says a lot about them, about being willing to come forward and share this. You know, yes, they've been provided a safe space, but it was also... Speaks to their resilience and their reverence for a loved one that's been lost. I think that's very, very helpful as well. You know, uh, this, in continuing this conversation about re traumatization, it's taking a, a lot of space currently in our genre, given several incidents. I'd say like, I guess the thing that comes to mind most strongly are two things for me. One is Ryan Murphy's Dahmer series, Mm -hmm. which really got a lot of backlash. And I understand the backlash. I understand the lack of communication with family members that should have been all of that stuff should have been cleared up. There's absolutely no excuse for it. There is a lot of controversy about Evan Peters's sort of supposedly sexy version of Dahmer. I I would say I don't necessarily agree with that. Right. I mean, he's a great actor. And the fact that he's somewhat attractive, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer was not an unattractive person. So it's not like they were intentionally making him sexy. Mm -hmm. And I would like to contrast that to what has been done around this mystery of Ted Bundy. Right. You know, Ted Bundy, I read this. Post on Twitter the other day that I thought was so apt about this because there was a female writer who was pointing out that it's not that Ted Bundy was as sexy as everybody makes him out to be. You know, he was, you know, well put together, but he was no Zach Efron. You know, he just <laughs> right. really wasn't. But what it was is he was successful because women are socialized to be helpers. And what he did was he victimized women by putting himself in the victim stance as someone who needed help and women in our culture are socialized to always like think of other people before themselves i just thought that was a great perspective that is important for all of this and then also look the very existence of our genre has spawned a lot of research and that research is very important to show that Exposure to true crime content can act as an instigator of trauma. It absolutely Mm -hmm. can or Mm re-traumatization, but it can also act as an inoculator for people to like calm themselves down. And there are studies that show this that we have referred to many times in our many episodes. Well, and actually
1: next week, you guys are because of the holiday, you're going to get a release of the conversation that we had with the researcher out of University of Colorado who is looking at true crime consumers and why they are going to this material. So that's a really great conversation, tons more research to be done, but you'll get to hear our conversation with her and her preliminary findings at this point with the study that she's running right now. But yeah, I think how productions approach this and these types of productions can make all the difference. And obviously here, it was just done with care. And I don't know, I think it's important for all of us, you, me, the listeners, whoever consumes true crime, just to take note of how we feel about things. And you can be in the gray, you can kind of be holding two different things at the same time. You know, with a lot of the outcry for ethics, I think it makes people feel a little, like, uncomfortable. Well, should I be consuming this or not? What should I be consuming? Should I feel guilty if I enjoy consuming some material? You know, when the Jeffrey Dahmer thing came out, I found it entertaining. I found it horrible that the family members of his victims were not included. But I also learned more about his victims from that than a lot of other productions that I'd ever seen that just focus on him. And I know it took half the series to get there, but... You know, I I kind of hold those two things at the same time. And it's just at least if we're thinking about them and where we want to put our money and attention, you know, that's that's all that we can do as consumers. Right. So last call, getting back to our documentary here, it really appears designed and with the aim to approach the subject matter with sensitivity and from the perspective of the entire affected community. Corona specifically shared that they were not particularly interested in delving into the killer's backstory or psychoanalyzing him. So on the front end, that gave us little fodder to kind of talk about that. But fortunately, we went a little bit deeper at the end here to give you some background to talk about that. But instead, they wanted to steer clear of really sensationalizing the killer. And as producers saw this opportunity to shed light on how institutions, including the New York media outlets, really overlooked or malign members of the queer community. For example, Corona pointed out that the New York Times had referred to the then unidentified killer as the gay slay killer, which he felt was an attempt to create, you know, just really a catchy headline.
0: Completely agree. So his vision, along with Gertler, for the series extended way beyond the source material of the book. They aimed to explore the circumstances that led to the killings, as well as the reasons for the lack of appropriate police intervention. And to help guide them through this historical context and perception of the LGBTQ subjects, they collaborated with Nikita Shepard, who is a historian in this area. And they also underwent trauma training to prepare for the handling of this dark subject matter of the series. Megan Doherty, another co-producer, played a crucial role in tracking down family members of the victims and a potential victim of the killer who was able to escape.
1: So they're even engaging in self-care for right i love this all the way i around. like it a lot <laughs> so stylistically last call methodically sets the scene for portrayal of the distrust and suspicion that divided the lgbtq community from law enforcement during that period and the series employs interviews with community organizers while using archival footage and news reports to vividly illustrate the strained relationship and the reluctance of queer New Yorkers to report crimes to the police. Instead, they turned to organizations like the Anti-Violence Project for support, also known as the AVP, and the documentary successfully underscores how these barriers and other challenges faced by the LGBTQ plus community at the time continues to have an impact today.
0: So let's just go ahead and jump into a recap of the four episodes And then we're going to expand on them a little bit later. So episode one is entitled Peter, then Thomas. And it opens with a high angle wide shot of a male figure at night walking from a wooded shoulder area on a dark road. So shoulder meaning the pull off area of sort of clearly not a well-traveled highway. The male figure casually enters his car. He turns on the ignition. And he pulls away as the camera pushes into the radio as Patti Page sings the melancholy lyrics to Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte from the iconic exploitation and gay male favorite film of the same name.
1: I did not even realize this.
0: <laughs> you didn't? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I th- no. oh, I thought everybody got that.
1: I must have been doing some chores as this was starting or something. And then hush, hush, sweet Charlotte gets mentioned later in this documentary. So kind of it funny.
0: does. And it, it plays a role, although I don't think it it really I think they're making a connection that is a bit tenuous, but yeah. it is yeah. interesting because <laughs> in the discovery of a dismembered body in New Jersey in 1992, the investigators are confronted with a really macabre scene that eerily mirrors an unsolved murder from just a previous year, like just a year ago, a case that had gone completely cold. The body was cut into seven pieces, washed, wrapped in paper at times, and definitely clothed within plastic bags or pieces of a plastic shower curtain. And there was enough of the victim's belonging disposed within the area of the body parts to identify this initial victim or thought initial victim as Thomas Mulcahy.
1: So he has his life remembered by his now adult daughter who discusses him as a person, as a father, you know, his likes, his dislikes, what kind of music he listened to, really painting a great picture of him. And as a businessman who seemingly just disappeared while on business in the city and really goes into what that was like for her and her brother and her mother, because Thomas Mulcahy was still married to her mom at the time. And right off the bat, you feel comfortable as a viewer, again, that it was really important for his daughter to participate. And she's doing this to pay homage to dad.
0: Thank you for framing it like that. Because I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I just immediately liked this woman. Me too. You know, on so many levels, I mean, she just seems incredibly authentic to have gone through this horrific tragedy. And she has, I don't know if I'm going to assume that she's made peace with it, but she certainly has, has done a lot of work. And there's also something that's just like sort of laid back and wonderful about her. Mm-hmm. And, and she even attributes a lot of those personal qualities of how she was raised because of her dad. Yeah. You know, and, and and his style of parenting. But back to these victims that now have a tenuous connection. Both of the victims were affluent and leading seemingly ordinary lives but harboring a secret because of their closeted identities as gay men in a large metropolitan area with a significant population of the LGBTQ plus community. The victim's last known whereabouts trace back to a dimly lit piano bar, very popular bar in that the victim's last known whereabouts are traced back to a dimly lit and very popular piano bar named the Townhouse Pub. Now, the pub was right in the heart of Manhattan. It was known to the neighborhood. It was very quiet. It had a very collegial vibe of mainly adult men Who maybe I mean they're described over and over as this is a Brooks Brothers type crowd, right? It's not guys coming in in t-shirts, maybe a polo, but this is more like if if it's a polo, it's polo and khakis and penny loafers or something Mm -hmm. like that. It's men who really didn't seem to be interested in pursuing the hardcore party scene in the bars in Manhattan.
1: Right, right. So the second identified but first to be murdered victim was Peter Anderson. And his murder was connected through the VICAP system. Really, there was enough information of similarities of the crimes to be able to put into VICAP. And so investigators really started looking at these two as being connected by the same perpetrator. And his body was found in a barrel, in trash bags in rural Pennsylvania. And his personal belongings were also finally discovered about 38 miles away. So interestingly, they kind of start off describing Peter as a gay socialite, although he wasn't out. So he was, you know, a a frequenter of the townhouse, but the person that they have come in and talk about Peter is someone who was a friend of his, just kind of ran in the same circles for a while. And his friend ended up getting married to a woman. And then Peter later got married to a woman, but they ended up having a secret romantic relationship. And they interview this guy in his gorgeous palm springs home which as soon Beautiful. as they like the drone footage down the the middle of the road in the palm trees i'm like oh i'm home it's back in palm <laughs> springs <laughs> i just love seeing palm springs on television but it's interesting because his friend talks about you know they had this this love affair peter ended up getting married later and so they kind of Separated and lost touch. And then all these years later, they run into each other at a political fundraiser in New York. They do leave that they go to the townhouse. And then Peter had way too much to drink. So his friend puts him in a taxi cab sends him to the Waldorf Hotel, you know, does all the right things, which also you're like, oh, God, you're the last one to see him. And you say you put him in a taxi cab, (laughs) like all eyes are going to be on you, buddy.
0: Thank goodness he ended up like at least going to the desk of the hotel. So that, that you know, be an alibi.
1: Totally. So basically, Peter does get to the hotel. He has been so intoxicated, though, that the hotel ends up tossing him out because he grabbed the butt of a worker there at the hotel essentially. So he's kind of out on the street and that's the last that they know about him. But... Well no,
0: remember he went back to the club. Oh, so did he, get, he go to the, the Yeah, t- he t- gets t- he gets cut off at the townhouse. You're totally right. Yeah. So they cut him off, his friend says, "Look, I'm going to make you a reservation at the Waldorf Astoria. Here's a cab putting you in. Go check in." He's so inebriated that he uses really poor judgment with a bellman or like you mm-hmm. said the employee, they toss him out so he goes back to the townhouse and gets thrown out again, I believe. Or he, maybe he's not even there long enough to cause a scene or get a drink, but the implication is that the killer picked him up there.
1: Yes, 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 yes. So basically... Pennsylvania state troopers are doing this investigation, because that's where his body was found. And they are the ones that notify the host of that fundraiser, as well as this friend that's talking about him, and they learn that he's been killed. But really, the trail just goes cold after that.
0: So as the anti-violence project just doggedly urges law enforcement to delve deeper into these crimes, there's a really disconcerting pattern that's beginning to emerge that now implies the presence of really what is a potential serial killer targeting gay men in the heart of New York City. So the socio-political landscape of gay rights in NYC was already faced with challenges at that time that further complicated this investigation. And it created a really tense environment for both the authorities and the gay community because there were a lot of bashings going on. Regardless, before the killing started, there it was they even cl- flipped to a clip from an oprah show where yeah. they're interviewing a former gay basher who thankfully i guess had moved on from his behaviors but still kind of looked back on it like yeah it was fun it was something to do on the weekend you mm-hmm. just kind of go and beat up fags
1: yeah the the documentary does this great job of going back and forth between the stories of the investigation and then kind of the historical pieces of what was going on so at this part in the documentary they talk about this nexus of the lgbtq plus community and violence perpetrated against them you know there were bombings of establishments the gay bashing stalking by groups of straight men and they really talk about how the secrecy the shame the fear and the violence all created a part in the creation of these obstacles to now unravel the mystery of these murders
0: right so episode one just in totality really hones in on the challenges in investigating these deaths coordination of information is not at Top level conducting useful investigations is not really working out well. And the law enforcement at the time of the investigation, and to this day in the interviews of these retired detectives, they exhibit some indifference and I would even say some covert hostility towards mm-hmm. the gay community. So, of course, there are going to be major challenges for even detectives at that time who may or may not have been invested in trying to figure out what's going on and connecting these murders to the increasing rise in anti-LGBTQ hate crimes, but also being able to differentiate them from just the blob of them coming through and the detectives themselves appear to struggle really with a true understanding or comprehension of how their bias clearly affected their investigation i mean it's there's several shots throughout the entire series where they go back to a couple of detectives and you're i mean i don't know if it hit you the way it hits me but it it hit pretty hard like man you don't have a fucking clue
1: yeah well there's that one shot where they kind of go back to their old notes and the camera's like panning over and i realized that it says like fag bars fag bars like it's just you know just how they're taking their shorthand notes and then there's one part where the producers ask these two detectives well is there anything like we didn't cover that we should have asked and this guy just kind of like shifts really uncomfortable in his chair like he's kind of posturing and he goes What's with all this emphasis on the gay stuff? And then they just leave it there. <laughs> like, here, we'll, we'll just leave that for the audience to.
0: Yeah. And that that's actually a recurring theme. That's a recurring theme with the the police work like they're just not getting how important it was contextually, but yeah. clearly just not able to. I mean, but then what's really fascinating is just how active the gay community was with protests and activism. They even had their own public access Television news broadcast that was really a drive to push these investigations. And they were well done, especially for the time. They were really well done. And, you know, what's infuriating is a recent interview with one of those detectives, where in the process of asking these questions, he's saying, Well, I don't know anything about the gay community. (laughs) And then it goes on, like to build on what you were saying that what is with all this stuff? He states, you know the perspective that the victims was being uh, that the victims were gay is irrelevant. I,
1: it, it's like he thought it was the right thing to say, like, "Oh, it's irrelevant. Like, you know, it doesn't matter to me that they're gay." <laughs> but it's like, no, yeah. it's everything about this case.
0: <laughs> I'll tell you that, like, I, I have to say, like, uh, that it was a bit triggering for me because yeah, I remember yeah. this was one of the times, you know, when I started. It re- took me back to, you know, I mean, there are probably thousands of incidents of overt hostility or intimidation that I've experienced. But I can't even comprehend the number of microaggressions yeah. that have probably been perpetrated on me as, as a gay male. But I do remember in my first year in grad school at the master's level, I had a professor for couples therapy, and he was probably in the top 10 worst teachers I've ever had, ever and one of my female peer students goes well in the middle of one of his lectures she goes well how does this how would this apply to a gay or a lesbian relationship Mm -hmm. and he looked at her with like this real condescension he goes you treat them like everybody else oh boy and the whole room went silent the whole room went silent like okay how are we going to get anything from you if you're just he thinks that he's saying the right right thing exactly Yeah, treat them like everybody else It's like well (laughs) <laughs> that kind of undermines the That's whole not cultural idea. competence. <laughs> it really is not at all. But I felt really that was a, a watershed moment for me because I told my therapist who got mm. really incensed and he encouraged me to make a complaint. So I went and made a complaint to the head of the program and said, you know, this, this is, this yeah. is not good.
1: Well, and it's it because what the officer is saying here is that. Being a gay victim is irrelevant, but the message that's coming across is these are irrelevant victims and irrelevant crimes, essentially, that, you know, don't need his time of day.
0: Well, it's, yeah, and it's, again, cultural competency is not just for mental health. Cultural cultural competency comes in (laughs) education. It comes in police work. It comes in everything and should be at this point, even at that time. I mean, America has always been like this amazing combination of cultures and racial Mm -hmm. identities and and sexual identities and it was not it's not that long ago and it's not so far removed that law enforcement should have done better but clearly they didn't
1: yeah and in this episode they also touch on what it was like to be gay in the 50s through the 70s they kind of span what would be these victims boyhoods period of time right and consideration for coming out during those time periods. And they eventually, as they should, and I'm glad they touched on this, talk about the fact of how it was labeled a mental health disorder and even touch on the testimony of Dr. Anonymous, who was the psychiatrist who exclaimed, I am a homosexual. I am a psychiatrist at that annual meeting of mental health professionals who were discussing whether or not It should be taken out of the DSM. And I think that was in 1972 or three. So we covered all of that in our episode 98 when gay was a crime. But I'm so glad that they, I mean, they, I know you got to hit like really high points on a documentary like this. And I was glad they included that.
0: I'm glad they included it too. And they also provided it as a direct counterpoint to speaking, uh, using an, an interview from 1992 when police agencies were being pressed on why they weren't taking action. And one of the sergeants uh, or a lieutenant says, well, they're criminals. They were committing sodomy. So why should we, you know, he's kind of implying like, why should we, we be working so hard to save these criminals' lives? So moving on to episode two, which is entitled Tony, the episode opens with an anonymous interview, a person sitting in the shadows and sharing a really horrific recount of what he went through after being drugged at the bar, led back to his home and being bound by the killer. By sheer chance, this gentleman was able to escape being drugged and kidnapped due to waking up before the murder took place. And a particularly, and I don't often use the word chilling, but this is really chilling.
1: It really is.
0: He said that when he woke up, and found himself bound and restricted, that the killer was staring at him. And the quote is, he looked at me like I was a bug under glass. Hmm. Very, very telling for us as clinicians.
1: Yeah, yeah. So this is just kind of a one-off. This was, this isn't Tony that the episode's named after. This is really... Probably somebody who got away from our perpetrator that we're talking about here. But in this episode, the central narrative revolves around the murder of Anthony Marrero, who was a 44-year-old Latino sex worker. And the NYPD initially attributing the killings to a pattern of targeting sort of older Caucasians from affluent backgrounds now faces a mystery in marrero's case because he's different right so the episode delves into the response of the underground gay community featuring an anonymous account from that victim and then shedding light on an unsettling encounter with an individual whose actions aligned with the suspected serial killer so tony's remains were found in ocean county new jersey relatively close to where mulcahy's remains were found and just a year after Mulcahy and Peter Anderson's remains were located. So the supplies found with Tony's remains were able to be traced back to a hardware store and a CVS on Staten Island. More about Tony here, we get an idea of what his life was like somewhat from his grandnephew, whose name is Antonio Marrero. And he shares his own experience of being disowned by his parents when he came out as bisexual and what his journey has been like to preserve his uncle's memory and really confront his family's homophobia. I mean, he it really, you know, it's it's very nice of how they are considerate kind of of where the family's at, their age, the cultural issues surrounding this Latino family. I just loved Antonio. I thought he was such a wonderful addition. He says so many profound things in this documentary.
0: Very wise young man. Yes. Yes.
1: So just a quote here from him when he's talking about his uncle, he says, what I knew from the media, he was a prostitute and a drug addict. There has to be more to it than that. So this is where, and it makes sense that Liz Garvis is on board, but where I start to get little flavors and feels of the Long Island serial killer case where you have the jurisdictional issues, right, of all these different places in New York coming into play, Staten Island, the city, but then also evidence being found here and evidence being found there. And now we have the idea that one of these victims is a sex worker, So what a mess we know more modernly from Long Island serial killer case. But it just doesn't feel like any of this is adding up to the police prioritizing these cases. So in the investigation of Tony's murder, a good friend of his gives the police some leads where he was actually working and some of the circles that he ran in. And it turns out that the area sort of around the townhouse was what they call a little bit more of like a red light district. So you had the gentleman going into the townhouse kind of being able to be themselves with other gay men at this nice upscale establishment. But then there were some sex workers that kind of lingered around in the areas. And presumably one of the friends said that Tony sometimes went up there. So we're starting to see little connections now back to the townhouse too.
0: There's also, they make a really good juxtaposition of what was going on in Florida all the time by exploring more of the marginalization, demonization and judgment of gay people across the U.S. through the repealment of employment protection laws all across the country. And they show that the reason this happened was the efforts of former Oklahoma beauty queen Anita Bryant. And it's I mean, I remember I remember living through that and her efforts. I mean, it's like it's the worst combination when it's someone who's polite and attractive and well-spoken and the, the tone of what comes out of their mouth is really appropriate. The content is really horrific. Yes. And that's her in a nutshell.
1: Yeah. Also first mentioned in this episode is really the first sort of hypothesis from some of the investigators about motive here. And, and they kind of go through a bunch of different things in the entirety of this documentary, but they're starting to say, okay, we feel like this offender was sexually motivated and from the LGBTQ plus community because of the way that he was able to fit into these establishments. So you're getting the idea that they're not seeing this as like a targeted hate crime by, you know, maybe a straight man in pretending to get into these circles. They're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> the people in these communities be way too savvy to, you know, fall for something like that, But so they do believe that these are sexually motivated, like we see with other serial sexual homicides. And they really say, we feel like he's enjoying getting one over on us, that we cannot figure this out.
0: Hmm. Interesting. I don't know. I don't like I don't know if I agree with that, but I also don't have enough information contextually yeah, to no, say yes or no. This I, doesn't seem. it's interesting, but it doesn't seem like it would be the main driving thing for this particular criminal. Yeah, but, it
1: was early on. So,
0: yeah. Anyway, we can move on to episode three now, which is entitled "Michael," and the narrative really starts to tighten up here. This mm-hmm. is where I was like, "Okay, now, now we're on a roll." Yep. And it's the third episode, as I said, and this episode unveils a disturbingly clear pattern that solidifies the presence of a serial killer after a fourth murder.
1: Right. So, just a recap: in 1991, we had Anderson. In 1992, we had Mulcahy. 1993 Marrero and then now Michael Secura also in 1993 and Michael Secura is like the most beloved member of this Greenwich Village community he was very out unlike you know the other victims for their various reasons and just seemed to be a staple of this community of this one establishment that we'll be talking about and Aside from some of his friends, Michael's sister talks about his life. So they bring her in to talk about what it was like growing up. She's wonderful. And, you know, he goes into the army. He is undesirably discharged for being gay. So they kind of go into that context a little bit more. And she goes up to visit him and hangs out with him once he moves to New York. Where I can't remember where they were from originally. Out of state somewhere. But it's funny. I, I love this part where she talks about... When she came out to her mom as being a lesbian and her mom's like, oh no, not another one. But she's like, Michael totally softened the blow for me. So thank God, <laughs> you know, he had done that, but they really seemed to have this amazing bond. And again, out of all these victims, he really is the most out and just kind of living his life authentically. And his sister certainly Got to see that when she went to New York to visit him.
0: I really like that you focus on describing the sister. And I want to also just maybe I'm being a little bit overreactive because of some of our most recent feedback, but your chuckling in the description of the sister is because she is a woman who is full of joy, despite the fact that she lost someone that is so close to her. You can't help but smile remembering her from this interview, because she has pulled her life together. She's been with her partner for decades. Yep. They're clearly very happy. And it's a really it's a bright moment in these in this horrible story. So before anyone comes back and says, Oh, we're laughing, again, and inappropriate, like, I just want to be very clear about that. Thank you. Thank you for my dead (laughs) dog.
1: Thank you for that. Yeah, the these I, I think that speaks to another point that the way that this is filmed, it's not like they have these family members in some dark room, you know, with this sad, uh, music undertone these are brightly lit sunny seeing these people in their everyday lives and who they are
0: with their dogs jumping all right? over them it's, with their... it's awesome yeah
1: exactly just just who these especially like this woman and i'm thinking of the guy in his you know gorgeous all white palm springs home remembering their loved ones in this way right so it's like okay this has happened decades ago and these survivors and family members move throughout the world still in in what is a very healthy way. And we've seen survivors of crimes that really you know, have not done well in other documentaries and how that feels very exploitative. So yeah, it is done in sort of this joyful way is what you're saying, as well as her just being a joy to listen to. But she does certainly discuss what it was like to learn about his murder and what that was like for the family and how she still struggles with that. Again, highlighting the destruction that these murders caused to many, many people. So Michael was last seen at the Five Oaks, which is a bar that offers all kinds of like nightly entertainment and one in which he would get up and often sing the last song of the night before closing. And then there is really more than ever information about the night of his disappearance because they interview Lisa, the woman who basically, she was the face of this place. She worked there. She sang there. I don't know if she's the owner. I can't remember because I think she moved on from there at some point. I think she
0: was like the night manager and she talked about, yeah, closing, like all the closing duties that she was on for like a a good decade or something. And then she moves on.
1: Yeah. So she remembers the night that, you know, Michael sitting in his normal seat at the bar, A guy sits right next to him, and as she kind of makes her way back over to them, he introduces him and says, this is so-and-so. He's a nurse at St. Vincent's. So now the police have something to go on.
0: And that's a big deal, right? So what's really great about this is that now the pool has been narrowed down potentially to male nurses. And right at the same time that this happens, the supplies that were disposed of with the bodies continue to pile up and be sorted and traced back to places of purchase in Staten Island. So this is a significant development that finally sparks the establishment of a now formidable multi-jurisdictional task force. And they're bringing together law enforcement agencies uh, to intensify efforts in tracking down the perpetrator. So now we've got some motivation, we've got some momentum and the gravity of this situation really deepens. So these unfolding events are now capturing the attention of national newspapers. That marks a pivotal moment on the investigation's visibility, which is always important yeah. because if you got eyes on you, maybe you're going to make a little bit more effort. Law enforcement themselves are now a focus of scrutiny on a national level. And that did not exist before this moment.
1: Right. And then you have the community starting to also kind of take matters into their own hands of trying to keep people safe. So they're handing out flyers at the bars, like literally flyers that say gay serial killer on them and warning. About the MO and just how to be safe and look out for each other. So that was a huge community effort. And then in this episode, they also were talking about, as far as this task force goes, there was a detective, Donna Malquenzos, and she worked for NYPD and she was part of the bias crime unit. So as a gay woman, she was part of this unit that actually had pretty quality outreach with the community and good relations. And they are so smart, obviously, to make her a part of this task force because she got instant credibility when she went in to ask questions and she was able to get a description of a car from one of the panhandlers that was outside of the Five Oaks, and they ended up getting a composite sketch. And then this leads to a tip for a nurse at St. Vincent's who looks really good for this, right? He has a house on Staten Island, a car that matches the description. He's a gay man. And then she goes, he even had like a giant bathtub. And I'm like, (laughs) oh, this is where it happened. (laughs) I I
0: had that same reaction. I know,
1: I know. But... fingerprints don't match. They have fingerprints from majority of these scenes. And I didn't want to just put this red herring in here, like, you know, just for the purposes, but I love what she says because she goes, you know what? It sucks. Like it sucks big time when you think you got it, but the worst thing to have in police work is tunnel vision.
0: But you're also bringing up a really important point as much as we like, oh, you know, the tub, everything. Can you imagine how they would have driven that as the only potential suspect if there had if he had not been exonerated by yeah. those partial palm prints and the fingerprints. That's a big deal. You're right. They were like, we found him. This yep. is it. Circumstantial evidence. This is him.
1: All tidied up. Yeah, exactly. So unfortunately, the leads do go cold and the task force gets disbanded by the end of 1993, which doesn't seem like a lot of time because we have two of these murders happening in 1993. Yeah. Yeah. They say they're out of investigative leads. And again, the community is just furious with this. So they continue their activism by, they take bloody mannequin part. Well, they paint them red with paint. So they look like bloody human body parts and hang them from lights around the village is sort of a you know symbolic protest.
0: Very effective, by the way. I mean, the, the photos oh, of it were man. like, that looked real.
1: Jarring, yeah. So in, in this last portion of this, third episode, they do a really nice review of LGBTQ milestones in the nineties, legal milestones, mostly civil rights milestones, and kind of bring us into 1999 when there is now new technology in identifying fingerprints or being able to obtain fingerprints from certain materials. And this one investigator who literally sees this on a television show is like, hmm, maybe we should try this in this cold case. He does this. They apply this new technology. They actually get fingerprints from the Mulcahy bags, which they did not have previously. And he manually sends the fingerprint cards they were able to get off of these bags to every single state because APHIS wasn't quite integrated yet. And a forensic analyst in Maine starts comparing and she finds a match. And she talks about, how unbelievable it was because she's like, here I go entering the one billionth, you know, in material from these fingerprint cards. And it turns out it's matched to a man named Richard W. Rogers Jr. who lives in Staten Island. He's a pediatric surgical nurse at Mount Sinai in New York City.
0: Yeah. And also I just, when I, I remember getting a chill at this point during this episode, because it's about the same time that forensics files, you mm-hmm. know, becomes, yeah like uh, a series because I remember forensic files was really big on this particular technology, which was sort of, I think the vaporization of super glue. Yep. Yep. And that was the, how you could, because the super glue would attach to whatever residual oil was left from, I mean, it's just fascinating. Like raises
1: the prints up off. Yeah. Makes them. Yeah. Raised off of the surface.
0: But again, this is also before ATHES was completely in operation, so people were having to do its partial computer and partial manual checking, and it was like, wow, that is really painstaking. But then we go on to episode four.
1: Yeah. So episode four is named Fred. And it's kind of interesting because you start off, you're like, who the heck is Fred? We got these four murders and we're kind of up to date, right? So it builds on the revelations of the prior three episodes. And Fred ends up being a college student that died in 1973. Frederick Spencer's death occurred in 1973 when a 23-year-old roommate, Richard Rogers, was a graduate student at the University of Maine. So Rogers shared a two-story house in Orono, Maine with three housemates, one of whom was 22-year-old Frederick Allen Spencer. And it's noted by several sources that Rogers and Spencer didn't have an amicable relationship, but there were no prior instances of violence between them. On April 28th, 1973, Rogers struck Spencer eight times in the back of the head with a roofing hammer. Spencer remarkably was still alive after the brutal assault. So Rogers subsequently asphyxiated him by placing a plastic bag over his head. Brutal. Brutal. <laughs> Awful, awful. Rogers waited until the evening to dispose of Spencer's body, wrapping Spencer in his nylon Boy Scout tent, carrying it out of the house, past the parking area, and into his car. Rogers then drove down Route 116 in Old Town for about a minute until he reached the Bird Stream Forest, where he discarded Spencer's remains.
0: Spencer's body was discovered by two cyclists on May 1st, 1973, leading to a police investigation that eventually identified him as the victim. They found bloody fingerprints, a footprint, blood droplets, and the murder weapon in Rogers' room. Rogers was arrested and admitted to the killing during the police interrogation, although he claimed it was an act of self-defense. Yes, self-defense by pounding a hammer into the back of someone's head multiple times subsequently rogers was charged with the murder of spencer and he pleaded not guilty he was then incarcerated at the bangor county jail without bail for six months until his trial commenced interesting intersection here bangor maine is Uh a big recurring theme in all of stephen king's horror novels very interesting Everything is located in that area. Rogers was the final person to take the stand, claiming that he acted in self-defense when he killed Spencer with a hammer and later suffocated him with a plastic bag. He did express remorse and confusion, explaining that he didn't know what to do, which led him to dispose of Spencer's body. And in the end, the judge actually reduced the charge to manslaughter. Because Rogers was very successful with his defense attorneys in using what is now called the gay panic defense. He alleged that Spencer made unwanted sexual advances, which contributed to the verdict of not guilty that was delivered by the jury after just under three hours of deliberation on November 2nd, 1973.
1: Yep, and documentary points out gay panic defense is still allowed to be used in 34 states. If you guys, it's not
0: as successful as it used to be. Of course, uh, it should be, it should absolutely be struck and stricken. I mean, it's just a read. I mean, I'm I'm reading this and it's like I, you know, you just can't believe that. Yeah, like he came on to me, so I had my reaction was not only to kill him, but see when he I wasn't successful. I got to take it to the next level. Just incredible. Yeah.
1: If if you guys can find it, I don't know if their material's still up, but I think I just mentioned this recently somewhere. The Getting Off podcast. They have a whole episode on gay panic defense, and it was fantastic. Of course.
0: I think all, I think our beloved peers have taken their show off.
1: Yeah. It's
0: sad. Yes. I can't wait till they get to the next level of their careers <laughs> where we can all reunite and. Collaborate. I think
1: that was the episode where I probably heard Jessa go off the most about something. And I was just like, Oh yeah, oh yes, girl. (laughs) It was great.
0: We just love them so much.
1: Yes. So and we're going to get into Rogers' background a little bit here. This was pulled from other sources because of the documentary not going into his background. So this is this is what we were able to dig up for you guys. But Rogers was born in Plymouth, Massachusetts on June 16, 1950. He was the eldest of five children, all raised by his father and mother, a fisherman, and a telephone worker, respectively. The family moved to Florida in the late 1950s for his father to take advantage of a higher paying job in sheet metal manufacturing. An important factor in Roger's future exploits is his extensive training and mentoring by his father in deer hunting and also hunting ducks and fishing with the cleaning and dressing of all of the above catches.
0: That's a skill. Yeah, no, it is
1: is. for sure. Rogers is described by his peers and family members as a slender, timid, and effeminate adolescent, making him an easy target for bullying at his high school. And Rogers was also an excellent student with participation in the French club at his school. Although described as generally well-mannered, in his mid-teens, Rogers is reported to have taken a knife from his home and used it to stab his elderly female neighbor over an unexplained dispute. Other reports not utilized in the documentary allege that Roger stabbed her for refusing his sexual advances.
0: So, which is confounding there, because who knows if he was aware of his sexuality at the time, experimenting, who knows. But what the most important thing there is his reaction. It's another piece of evidence that shows that this person has a severe, severe anger problem that is triggered by multiple events. Yes, So this attack resulted in Rogers having a brief psychiatric hospitalization, followed a release right back into the community. So I don't have the length of time that he was held. It was in another state. I don't know if the laws at that time delineated 72-hour hold versus a 48-hour hold or anything. But we just know that he was there briefly after the attack and then released. He went on to graduate from Palmetto High School in 1968 and then was enrolled at Florida Southern College in Lakeland, Florida. And while there, he was described as... Guess what? what? What do you think hmm. the word was that was used to describe him?
1: A quiet loner?
0: A quiet loner. Yes. Who, quote unquote, kept to himself. He was described as being close to one roommate that he spent a great deal of time with. And as we mentioned, Rogers not only got acquitted of the murder of one of his college roommates, but he also managed to have the record expunged, which may have been the turning point. I'm just going to say here as a professional, as an evaluator, I believe that may have been the turning point for him developing a disinhibition towards future crimes. Well, yeah, that
1: and add on the fact that he stabbed a woman and nothing happened. Like, come on. so He
0: just keeps getting away with things um, because it's really notable that expungement for such a brutal crime is unusual. And not only is because of the brutality of the crime, but usually expungement is done for really young adolescents. Right. So it's like, hey, we don't know what's going on with you here. We're going to hope that we can give you a chance for your future. He was ready to graduate from college. He was 22 years old. This like How this managed to be expunged is just brutal, but it probably has to do with the gay panic defense. And following his acquittal, he moved to New York in 1973, where he attended nursing school at Pace University, graduated in 1978 with a master's degree in science. He then moved to Manhattan and he was hired as a nurse. By Mount Sinai Hospital, which holy shit, the lack of background checks. I mean, even with the expungement, I can't, you know, check this guy out. He eventually became a surgical nurse and worked in the pediatric ward until his 2001 arrest. And even in, you and I, when we were planning to watch this, we were like, wait, a pediatric nurse at a New York hospital. Is this hmm. the serial killer that was in the exorcist? Okay, wait. And I you're like, a, no, no, wait, that's not him. That's not put him. Put a part
1: at the end about this. So let's, oh, we'll, oh.
0: don't jump
1: ahead. Don't jump ahead. So yeah, back to the documentary and after his identification as a suspect, NYPD, you know, we have this task force that was there for the investigation. The trail went cold. They disbanded the task force. But or when he gets identified, the task force, whoever's left of it, is like, okay, let's surveil him to gather as much as we can just for intel and evidence to help our case. And since he's in the city, most of the time, they're like, all right, we're going to hand this over to NYPD to do the surveillance. Really, it sounds like from the, the other investigators, NYPD did not do much surveillance at all. And then without letting anyone else know, they just scoop him up and arrest him from the hospital. And they find out later how politically charged this is because they did this Because Mayor Rudy Giuliani's mother was a patient at this giant, enormous hospital, and he didn't want his mom in there where a serial killer was in there. So the top brass said, let's get him out, and they just arrest him. They go through the attempt at the interrogation, basically put everything out in front of him, the evidence that they have, and he lawyers up. They do searches on his homes and they found the they found a lot of stuff. I think the most interesting things were tucked right under his couch was a little kit with the sedative versed in there and some needles and you know his little let me put you out kit just right there for easy access. Very
0: handy, very handy yeah. located.
1: They found a Bible with highlighted verses that were about murder and dismemberment and probably all of the worst just little things you can find in the Bible about things that are matching up with these crimes are highlighted. And then they find these photographs of workers like they're taken from probably a window down to street level
0: like blue collar workers yeah
1: yeah yeah workers on the street workers doing some landscaping perhaps and there's red pen markings on them with that appear to look like wounds and blood it was really really disturbing I was just thinking of like, oh, my gosh, are those workers watching this documentary? And they're like, wait, that was me. (laughs) I was working here at that time. So throughout their investigation after his arrest, they also learn of a victim in 1998 who was drugged and attacked by Rogers. Essentially, Rogers roofied him. He woke up naked, strapped down to the bed or whatever he was on by a bunch of different of those hospital bracelets, like links of hospital bracelets. And as he sees Rogers, Rogers injects him. He passes out again. But this man actually goes to the police and Rogers is arrested for false imprisonment. But guess what? he is acquitted and they opine that this was really likely due to the defense of laying it on thick that this gay man was kind of asking for it right like oh you went home with someone and for you know knowing that you were going to have sex kind of like like heavy heavy and you were, heavy and you, victim were, you blaming. know
0: you'd been drinking and you knew you yeah. were going to have sex and you didn't know their last name and you didn't or that kind of
1: Yeah, they just Just go through the transcript where they're just roasting this poor victim. So that happened in 1988. And then shortly after is when Peter Anderson was murdered.
0: They talk at this point about one of the or not so much the documentarians, but the police sort of opining that internalized homophobia Mm -hmm. being the theory of motivation. And what do you think about that? Well, I want to, you know, I talked with Josh Hallmark about this as we're collaborating on an an eerily similar case uh, that he always, you know, Josh Hallmark always does amazing work. And, you know, the way I put it is that I don't want people to, and it's certainly law enforcement, don't get distracted Mm -hmm. by your own bias because that's really a problem. Yes, this killer is gay, but his being gay is the road he's on it's not the card. and it's not the driver. It's not the motor. Mm. The motor of the car is his psychopathy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right.
0: And now we've even got clues that there is some weird stuff going on with the level of highlighting Bible verses. Right. Like It's having an internal conversation with himself about justification. That is interesting to me. And maybe internalized homophobia could be a part of that, but it's not the main drive. So don't get Don't get distracted by something like that when you're investigating.
1: And investigation wise, does it really matter? I mean, like, you know, motive is interesting and motive can help find a suspect and can certainly help prosecute someone. But something as nuanced as this, especially when you have probably many ingredients in this pot of motivation. Right. Is like, or how, I guess what you said, like from which lens are you looking? Is it part of your bias or is it important part of the story?
0: Right. And now it sounds maybe to some listeners, it might sound like we're contradicting ourselves to what we said earlier in the episode about it is important, the fact yeah. that the victims all share this profile. But what we're saying now is that when you get to the subtleties and the nuances of motivation, let's put that aside for a second and and drill down into the psychopathy And the drive that Mm -hmm. is, you know, causing these to happen. And also, hopefully, I really hope that down the road, there are more victims identified that people are able to put this together.
1: Yeah, yeah, I I certainly just go back to kind of the the broader theme that was brought up initially was just this is just sexually motivated, sexually motivated, psychopathy. Yes. Okay. so they then go into the prosecution of him so he only gets charged and prosecuted for two cases the marrero case and the mulcahy case because of the jurisdictions so those were the two out of new jersey that's where they were found that it got a little i got a little scared in this part because they were like we don't even know where these murders took place so there was kind of this like where do we charge this does this even you know Thank God that didn't slip through the cracks here. But, but it felt
0: like it could have. It oh, really man. felt like it could have.
1: Yes. So the prosecutor talks about their process. She said, you know, we really wanted to put heavy focus on the victims. We put a lot of thought into the questions for the jurors to be able to account for any bias because clearly he had gotten away with things before because of that. We did not want that to happen here. So anyway, he goes on trial for these two. Murders in 2005. The jury deliberates for four hours. They come back on with guilty for every single charge, and they even have the judge that sentenced him, that gave him these back-to-back consecutive life sentences. So Rogers is gone and put away. Thank goodness.
0: So there are some interesting things that popped up for me throughout the documentary, (laughs) and this one is one that I I, we have such a savvy audience. I'm always impressed by how amazingly smart our listeners are but for those of you that may not know this one of the things if you watch this documentary that the detectives are just flummoxed by some of the things that they find in roger's apartment and one of them is this incredibly extensive collection of golden girls episodes Uh uh-huh golden girls the television series as well as a whole bunch of black and white movies, classic Hollywood movies. Hush, and hush, sweet Charlotte. <laughs> harsh, hush, hush, sweet Charlotte being one of them, which right? they're thinking, they immediately go, oh, he was obsessed with that movie because there's dismemberment in Beheading. that movie. And it's like, yeah. Yeah, I think that, again, it's not the driver. That's a very tenuous connection. But I, it is a question that comes up for people, especially maybe even younger generations of gay males that didn't really come up at, at, as I did, like in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, really. So, you know, we talk about the media influence that, for one thing, all of the actresses on The Golden Girls had previously starred in gay-friendly projects, oh, every okay. single one of them. They were well-known for, you know, Bea Ma- author starred in Maud. Maud had very, very progressive and challenging episodes on a sitcom, some of which would probably just cause a furor today because mm. we've just done this huge backswing into puritanism, mm-hmm. but why all the golden girls love? I yes, mean, because <laughs> well, these detectives
1: look, are like, they're asking the producers, do you even know what the golden girls are? And they were like, yes, we've seen them all.
0: <laughs> yeah. Like that, and they're just flummoxed by the fact right. that like, yeah, of course I've watched all of them. And that's a younger interviewer. Yeah. That's yeah. that's offering that question, but the gays can relate to marginalized communities clearly can relate to marginalized communities, women and elderly women, or none of them were elderly at really at the time they were all in their fifties, but you know, we, we marginalize Mm -hmm. and we demonize and we ignore and diminish the importance of older populations, especially female populations in our culture. And I think that Another important part, which is like a nuance, is that gays can align with strong members of marginalized communities who really insist on reclaiming their power. And every single episode of Golden Girls is about women claiming their power at that age Mm -hmm. and broaching some delicate subjects. I think one Blanche has a gay brother who she has trouble with, and then there's Rose has a friend from elementary school that comes out. And I mean, they really handle the episodes well. And then when it comes to classic movies, you know, there's something mysterious and wonderful about the black and white era of classic movies. And those movies, especially right after, you know, right before the code was instituted and afterwards into the 40s and 50s, you saw women's stories emerging about them Facing incredible odds, Mm -hmm. and then you had like really strong, popular female actresses that took it to the next level, like Betty Davis, Joan Crawford. Those are the two biggies, you know, that then went on to do the the hag exploitation films. But yeah, so in
1: their own personal lives, really struggled with the uh, lots of different things and being Hollywood starlets, right? Their their relationships, their drug and alcohol abuse, getting older, right? Like in their own lives, the you know, classic Judy Garland stories, all of that.
0: Right. And when you talk about the defense tools that marginalized communities can use and develop, each one has their own specific and subtle nuance. Very strongly exhibited in the gay community is the use of humor. And sometimes that humor can be quite acerbic and it Mm -hmm. can actually go into cutting or an overarch of just cattiness. And that's one of the things that you can say about the Golden Girls is, the humor and the cattiness and the one-liners flying back and forth mm-hmm. are are just excellent. Yeah. And I remember I was on tour with the show all through the UK in the early 90s. And here I am staying at this series of hotels. You know, we just kind of, we have a deal with them. So whenever we're going from location to location, uh-huh. we stay at this chain. And all of them came with a gym and a sauna and a steam room. So it's like, okay, this is pretty good. This is a good setup. So I'm in the steam room and this, you know, silver haired gentleman comes in, you know, he's wrapped in his towel and he sits down and he's a local, he's like a local, like upper middle-class guy that joined that hotel's gym for the benefit uh-huh. so he can come. And he's like, oh, where are you from? And like, we start having this conversation and he hears him from the US and he goes, oh, I gotta tell you that golden girls that golden (laughs) girls is the best thing ever that's the best thing ever to come out of america i mean he was really Loved it. And he's like a straight guy with like a family. He's just like, it was a family watching how much they oh loved his particular humor. That's so, so that cute. was a very powerful thing that happened at that time in television. So it was a big deal. I know that sounds like a lot to go off on <laughs> for this particular documentary, but I think that it lends to it's another example of how clueless the detectives were. And even to this day, as they're being interviewed, like, wouldn't you think if you worked on one of the biggest serial killer murders in your jurisdiction that you would want to dive a bit deeper. Well, what is this all about? Yeah. Let me, let me find some of this out. What's going on here.
1: I mean, yes. And even just like afterwards, you know, like, let me, uh, this was a big case in my life let me perhaps i could even draw on some new expertise here and yeah. i don't know i mean i clearly were not interested am in clearly that. like in la la land but but yeah I, to me it was even more funny that the producers decided to shine a little light on this part yeah <laughs> you know it was without it was having
0: fun. to do anything at all except turn on the damn camera totally. and let them talk right Totally. it's yeah. not like they edited them to make them look like dumbasses. Right. they just right. like it's clear
1: so whenever we talk about serial killers we also want to kind of ground ourselves back in statistics a little bit because if you have all of these documentaries talking about them it can feel like they are rampant. So with serial killers, some statistics here, they are primarily male. We know that the majority of known US serial killers, approximately 91.4% are male, while only 8.6% are female. And they certainly have a higher incidence of paraphilias, those atypical sexual preferences that we see, again, more commonly in men as opposed to women anyway. So hence, why we have so many sexually motivated crimes. However, financial incentive remains the most common motivation behind serial killings as a whole, although it is closely followed by the drive for sexual pleasure, which accounts for 27.3% of the cases. Organized crime involvement encompassing affiliations with gangs or criminal organizations. We have to be mindful of those as well because there can be multiple people killed, but that represents the least frequent motivating factor for serial killers, comprising only 6.2% of male serial killers and a mere half a percent for female serial killers. And despite the enduring fascination with this subject, yes, serial killings are shown to have been significantly declining over the past few decades.
0: Thankfully, thankfully, yes. you wouldn't you wouldn't know it because of the the fascination, right? But maybe maybe our fascination in this genre has put a spotlight on this in a way that killers are thinking about it more. Who knows? It'll be interesting. Maybe down the road we'll have actual information on that. But then I wanted to follow up with with your sharing of that as well, with a little more information about psychopathy and what we would call the additional diagnoses that can come along with the label of psychopathy. There are actually these things called comorbid diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And in a study that looked at the relationship between anxiety disorders and antisocial personality disorder, which is what we taught, like that's the actual diagnosis. And when we say antisocial personality disorders on sort of on steroids and Mm -hmm. to the nth degree or exponential, then it becomes labeled as psychopathy. But when we look at ASPD among adults in the general population, there's a significant Correlation that is found and this particular study that I'm referencing sought to determine whether anxiety disorders are significantly associated with an increased likelihood of ASPD among adults in the community and also to investigate whether the association is specific to certain types of anxiety disorders and therefore independent of other psychiatric comorbidities. So they're really trying to, I'm not going to use the the term that I used last time in a serial killer, but they're really trying to parse all of this information as a good researcher will do. And then finally, the study examined whether or not the co-occurrence of ASPD and anxiety disorders is linked to a greater burden or a greater ratio of psychopathology including affective disorders which is mood disorders substance use disorders as well as suicidal ideations gestures and Hmm. behaviors interesting so yeah seriously like i love that somebody is really just pulling all this apart and looking at all the different all the different aspects Because there are two studies that were from the mid-1990s, right around the time that these crimes were being committed, by researchers Hollander and Colada. And they showed evidence that there was an association between an ASPD diagnosis and an increased likelihood of obsessive-compulsive disorder. Fascinating and totally makes sense. Fascinating and totally makes sense. And then there's a recent study from Thomason and Vaglum that showed that anxiety disorders were common among a majority of patients that had been diagnosed with ASPD, 61%. That is a huge, huge amount, as well as alcohol disorders. So it's a common majority among patients with ASPD and comorbid alcohol use disorders. And then 43% of the study's participants had diagnoses of panic disorder and agoraphobia so isn't that interesting because we always look at people with aspd we always want to like just do the down and dirty quick like surface level oh well they have a lower functioning amygdala they have the lesser limbic response we don't think of them as having an emotional spectrum they're so
1: calm cool and unfeeling Interesting, right.
0: But to have 43% of a study's participants have panic and agoraphobia is very interesting. Mm. I mean, maybe it's a different motor, maybe it's a different way that it emerges in this constellation, but it is very, very interesting. But it is interesting that, that there's a higher prevalence of comorbid anxiety disorders than there are comorbid affective disorders like depression, irritability, and mania. Yeah. So... You would think that the irritability and maybe even manic or hypomanic behaviors would be more aligned, but it's actually more anxiety disorder. So overall, 3.3% of the population have been diagnosed with ASPD over a lifetime, and 9.4% had conduct disorder without ASPD, and 23.9% had anxiety disorders without ASPD. I mean, over half this was like 54.3% of adults with antisocial personality disorder met criteria for an anxiety disorder during their lifetime. And 42% of those with conduct disorder without ASPD had at least one lifetime anxiety disorder. I know this is dense, but this Mm. is really fascinating stuff. And it's certainly as we did like more of a complex exploration of this stuff in preparation for this, I was like, well, I'm glad that we now have this really recent research so that we can fold it into future episodes right. when it's appropriate, right? So while the general public's immediate view of a psychopathic killer tends to be somebody with like icy cold and detached emotions like a, like a Hannibal Lecter, the data actually suggests that anxiety disorders are associated with that significantly increased likelihood of ASPD within the adult population. Then within anxiety disorder, specifically social phobia and PTSD are associated with significantly increased likelihood of conduct disorder and antisocial personality disorder compared to those without. So over half of adults with ASPD had at least one anxiety disorder during their lifetime. Now, that is fascinating. So does the killing, does the process of killing, does the preparation for the killing act as some sort of mediator or mitigator of existing anxiety disorders? That's fascinating.
1: I mean, it says over a lifetime- I am I would be so curious, I'm not going to hypothesize anything, but I would be so curious if, especially because you mentioned there that there's the social phobias, the PTSD that can be present, right. the, the panic disorders, is this stemming from trauma, childhood trauma, that is, that's when the anxiety disorders are present, they never learn to adequately regulate their emotions or deal with that, and then does it just turn into shutting it off? Like turning it into <laughs> antisocial personality disorder because your body, your mind doesn't know what to do all of, with all of this.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's again. This is this wow. show is about the documentary series, but <laughs> yeah. it does. But it is really interesting to think like, and I understand that they focused, they chose not to focus on Roger's background mm-hmm. too deeply. So we went and got a little bit, but now I'm wondering more, and not to glorify him, but I want to know like, what was that family like? Yeah, like, yeah. You know? for sure.
1: For sure. So let me quickly clear up something that we talked about briefly earlier in this episode, because I was very, very confused, but there's a man named Paul Bateson and he's the convicted killer and real life radiologist who played the radiologist in 1973's film, The Exorcist. And we covered this In our Halloween episode a gazillion years ago in 2017, when we teamed up with Holly Weird Paranormal, and it got me all confused when we started doing this because he was also suspected of a series of murders of gay men dubbed the bag murders where their body parts were disposed of in trash bags, and then tossed into the Hudson River And this was a series of murders of six men, and it took place from 1975 to 1977. So Bateson was convicted in 1979 of murdering a film industry journalist, Addison Varell, and sentenced to a minimum of 20 years in prison. And in 2003, he was let out on parole, which only lasted five years. But prior to Bateson's trial, police and prosecutors implicated him in these bag murders, and there was even reports that he had boasted about these killings while in jail, which we have seen wackadoo people do all the time. But so they brought it up at his sentencing, but no additional charges were ever brought against him. There was no evidence linking him to this, and. This whole experience inspired Exorcist director William Friedkin to make the 1980 film Cruising, which was based on a novel that was written a decade earlier, but it incorporated the storyline to this real-life serial murder, talking about the city's leather subculture. And he used Basin as a basically an expert consultant on this film. So very interesting. I just wanted to parse that out and also... I wonder if these other bag murders were ever attributed to Rogers in anyone's investigation.
0: It would line up
1: because it's kind of a window—a period where we don't have him. Yeah, it's a window.
0: Yeah, I, I mean know. it's interesting because I would think that if we're just sort of riffing and hypothesizing, it would make sense for Bateson not to to just be tight-lipped about anything. Because mm-hmm. then, if you start giving co- contradicting evidence, like "Hey, I'm just I just got this one charge. Let me shut up, do my yeah. time, and not be found." I, but, but
1: Rogers, I mean, I mean, who knows? Maybe he totally changed his mo. Maybe he was because these are or still was unsolved. developing it. Yeah, yeah, maybe
0: he was developing it. Yeah, right. I will say about the movie cruising. It was shocking for me to see as a young man. I don't think it's a, a great film. It is interesting. All the actors are really great, but it does have one of the most shocking and brutal scenes. Mm. Almost I would compare it to Jaws because there's a moment where the camera pans to a character that you, you develop an affinity for throughout the movie and then... You see his body, his corpse Mm. after being completely brutalized by the killer. And it is like it was it was a moment in me watching movies like going, whoa, that was that was rough. That was like horror movie level. So brains ratings. Let's talk about it. I gave it three brains. I'm a little flexible ish, Mm -hmm. you know, I thought it was slow. But on the second watch, I felt like I had a better understanding of the goals of the producers. And and then I recognized that the pace changed and it picked up. And that they were really trying to recreate the context of the environment in which these crimes took place. Super glad that there was a decidedly queer perspective for the series. Yes. But I did feel that the B-roll and stock footage was not necessarily congruent with the storyline of the particular victims. Like it was, it was good for painting a picture of what was going on in New York at the time. I wish that there had been like a little bit more differentiation of this is what's going on politically. People are being out and proud and like a bit over the top with Mm -hmm. their, with their personalities and their presentation because it's necessary to get attention, but that wasn't representative of the victims. And I wish that they had done a little bit more of the delineation, you know, not every gay man or woman living there at that time, was was experiencing a recreational party life at the level that was pictured pretty prominently yeah. in the first couple of episodes. So yeah, that's what's my only big criticism for it, but definitely worth watching.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I echo all of that. I give it three point five brains, the little true crime content consumer in me was like, oh man, I want to know more about him. But again, I saw the vision and having the background that we put in this today just even adds to that. How thoughtful they were about their process was great. And I feel like I'm starting to see a theme of, I like documentaries more when it's really yeah. victim, victim focused and that consideration is there. So, and I like the historical back and forth, you know, telling the story, but then, okay, here's what was going on socially. Here's what was going on politically. Here's what was going on, you know, across the country or just in with some of these men coming from, small towns, you know, what that was like for them. So that really worked for me. I loved everybody that they chose to include in this. And I think I want to leave it with one of Anthony's nephew's quotes towards the end here. So he says, I want everyone who has a family member or friend that's been a victim to violence against the queer community to have a sense of my friend, my lover, my family member, They weren't just a statistic or victim in a news article. They lived, they loved, they had their own story too. And I thought that was perfect. Yeah. You know, and you just continue to think about how these families are living their lives. And I just thank them for sharing their loved ones' stories with us through this.
0: Yeah. Good job. Good job.
1: All right. Well, another one in the books. Let us know what you guys think of this documentary and... With that, we will see you next month and next week on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, guys.
0: Bye, folks.
1: We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usry of Ear Cult Productions.
0: The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons Attribution License. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube.
1: All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com.
0: Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements.
1: Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash L.A. Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience, and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way.
0: Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on L.A. Not So Confidential. Bye, folks.